Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is also the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Professor Lisa Miller, PhD, who's the New York Times best-selling author of The Spiritual Child and her more recent book, The Awakened Brain. She's a professor in the clinical psychology department at the Teachers College at Columbia University, where she founded the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute, which is the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology and has held over a decade of joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. Her innovative research has been published in more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in leading journals. She's the editor of the Oxford University Press Handbook of Psychology and Spirituality, founding co-editor-in-chief of the APA journal Spirituality and Clinical Practice, an elected fellow of the American Psychological Association, the APA, and the two-time president of the APA Society for Psychology and Spirituality. She earned her doctorate under the founder of positive psychology, Professor Martin Seligman, and she's served as principal investigator on multiple grant-funded research studies. She speaks and consults the U.S. military, businesses, personal development, faith-based organizations, schools and universities, and for mental health and wellness initiatives, which I'm sure keeps you extremely busy. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And so I'm going to go straight into the first question, which is a shaping moment involving your choice of work. So David, first of all, I want to elevate and highlight what you're doing to expand the public square, to deepen our awareness and shift our conversation to really a much fuller, more expanded understanding of, of reality and who we are. And this is such a lovely way to do it in an authentic conversation. So thank you for including me. To answer your question, I think that one of the most profound experiences in directing my life's work was when I was a new psychology intern. I just finished my doctorate. I was on a New York City inpatient unit as a clinical psychologist. And the first thing I found in really only a matter of days is that very kind, well-intentioned, bright, very intelligent people trained in the models of our time, this was 1990s, really were not helping these patients to get better. Patients who came on the inpatient unit were often in terrible distress, tremendous pain, the worst week of their life so far. And the regimen of medication, the type of therapies we were doing, saw them out the door in a week or two. And then they were back three months later, four months later, and then back again, you know, within the next year, this revolving door of admissions of severe struggle and pain of severe pathology was a clear sign to me that we did not have the answer. So I figured, let's listen to the patients. I think when 
we know we're listened to, we step forward, we share a bit more. And the women and men on the inpatient unit started coming to me, pulling me aside and telling me what really was going on, what really they wanted, what they had to ask of us as therapists. I'll share with you a couple stories that show the wisdom of the patients of any one of us in a period of tremendous darkness and in moments where we just don't know which way to turn. I got a knock on my door one morning, answered it, and there was a patient who I had learned that morning was so ill, so full of suffering, that after 20 plus admissions to our inpatient psychiatric unit, she was being sent so-called upstate. Upstate was a state-run mental hospital way out in the wilderness where people, well, they rarely returned. It was sort of the end of the line. And she knew this. So this Mm -hmm. patient who we'll call Margaret said, Dr. Miller, I've got to talk to you. Could you come with me, please? I don't want to talk in your office. So we left the offices where all the mental health providers were, walked down the hall of the inpatient unit. And she said, no, no, we need privacy, Dr. Miller. And Margaret guided me into the cafeteria, back through the back of the cafeteria to the pantry and to the back of the pantry to the pots and pans closet. And standing there with pots and pans, Margaret looked at me finally feeling there was sufficient privacy for her request. Margaret said, Dr. Miller, will you pray with me? She said, I'm being Mm -hmm. sent upstate tomorrow. And I'm wondering if we could pray together. And she knew that I was of a different faith tradition than her. Margaret was Catholic and she brought out her rosary and she prayed the rosary out loud with our sense of shared spiritual presence. And then she turned to me and she said, Dr. Miller, now you pray your way. So Margaret wasn't asking me to pray the rosary. She was asking me to pray the way that my lineage had taught me. And I prayed that way. And we went back and forth in the pots and pans closet. And she said, now let's say our prayers. And she turned to me and she bowed her head in prayer. And she said, on this day before being really deported, Dr. Miller, well, I'm upstate. Please look out over Dr. Miller. Hmm. And I have wonderful for her. Yeah. So it became clear to me that a spiritual response to suffering was the only way forward for many people. And that in our darkest moments, oftentimes mental health treatment felt and maybe actually was a place where spiritual life was not welcomed. So that became my life's work to use the lens of science to understand the spiritual way through suffering. Well, I must say that is certainly a shaping moment or shaping encounter. And it it reminds me of two things. Um, One is that I had Dr. Thomas Verney on this podcast in August, and he was describing his experience as a young intern where he went to a large psychiatric hospital. And, And after about a week, it got round that he was um, a young doctor 
um, who actually listened to people. Um, he didn't just give them some medication and send them away. He listened. And so large queues began to, to uh, form outside uh, his door. Um, and this taught him a lifelong lesson, um, which he, I think he's been applying, really, because he's in his late 80s now. And then the other thing is um, this the spirituality and psychiatry special interest group of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, uh, which was set up, uh, the founding chairman was Dr. Andrew Powell. And uh, there's now, I think, 5,000 uh, members of this in the Royal College of Psychiatrists. It's the largest special interest group in the whole of the college. Uh, and this is a kind of indication of exactly what you're talking about, that uh, the need to open up to the spiritual dimension of patient care. What a magnificent image. The patients lined up outside his door. We all vote with our feet and the tremendous hunger to be understood and to connect and to seek guidance at the spiritual level is in us. I mean, what we now know through since that time, 25 years of peer review science is that every one of us is naturally a spiritual being. There's a heritable inborn capacity for spiritual life and that moments of despair and depression if we track our human journey can be moments of tremendous awakening yes moments of joy and illumination can be too but for many people it's when the bottom drops out post-traumatic spiritual growth developmental depression that we ask what is life showing me about really truly is real and, and important here. And it turns out, David, that even our brain is wired through moments of despair to see more deeply into life, to awaken mm. to the deeper spiritual reality. And when we do, we literally strengthen regions of the brain. We show a thicker cortex across regions of perception, reflection, and orientation, the parietal, precuneus, occipital, which then down the road prove neuroprotective against the next unwanted moment, the next time rain falls in our life, which means that despair is the opening, trauma is the gateway to spiritual awakening. And if we engage and ask, what is God asking of me now? What is the source of all life revealing to me now? What is the universe showing me and who am I to become to love more deeply? perhaps unequivocally, to see God's presence or spirit in and through every bit, every step of life. When we build this lens, when we strengthen this innate capacity with which we are all endowed, we are neuroprotected against the next bout of depression because we now have a spiritual response to suffering. We track this through our MRI studies. We track this through long-term clinical course studies that are published in JAMA, American Journal of Psychiatry. This is how we're built. So medication alone is insufficient to grow. If we need to take away the pain, then fine. But these opportunities for growth are foundational to awakening to the fullness of who we are as spiritual beings, hardwired body, mind, and soul spiritual beings. Yes. I mean, that's so well put. And as it happens, I've just been visiting a church in Segovia over the weekend, uh, right next to the monastery where St. John of the Cross lived. And, and of course, the dark night wow. of the soul is, would be one way 
of talking about developmental depression if you were to translate it into a different language. Yes, yes. So we've known this for some time as a humanity, and we've had radiant exemplars of walking this path. I think for us all to embrace is the reality that we all are spiritual beings, that that every one of us, and people will say, am I spiritual? Yes, I don't need to turn my head, you are spiritual. But it turns out through the lens of twin studies, right? we can determine the extent to which any human capacity is inborn versus environmentally formed, that our natural capacity for transcendent relationship to live in a sustained connection to our higher power, who I call God or spirit, that is one third innate, two thirds environmentally formed, which means that being in a faith community that's serving as people you know, of unconditional love, whether the Jews say tukun alam, um, whatever our tradition may be, but coming together and strengthening our spiritual awareness, or for some people being spiritual, but not religious, being in nature, being people of deep service of poetry to the present company is mm. essential to the formation of our spiritual core. The older we get, the more we pick our environment. When we're 15, a great deal is handed to us. When we're 45, we choose our environment. Do we cultivate our spiritual awareness? Is our natural awakened brain the focus, a primary, the primary focus of the choices we make? An environment includes our internal environment, which is to say our prayer life, our meditation life, our engagement with transcendent forms of art. No, very much so. I, I think I think that's, uh, as you as you say, this is something that we can all do for our, ourselves. And I'd like to move on to um, any thoughts about an influential mentor or teacher and, and, and who might have helped you along the way with some advice or guidance. Does anybody spring to mind? David, my formal mentor, Martin Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, from whom I got my doctorate, was a tremendous guide to me. We didn't agree on everything, which was part of why he was such a good mentor. He mm-hmm. allowed me my own vision. He didn't want to somehow asexually reproduce himself through every doctoral student. Um, and I'll share with you what I learned from Marty. Um, the first thing was that ideas were to be lived and walked. So we never sat in his office. We always strolled the streets of Philadelphia and it would often culminate in, you know, a pastry. <laughs> Yes, why not? <laughs> <laughs> that you know, somehow the breath of life, every step of life was to be filled with ideas, and ideas were a lens for navigating our precious, our precious time on earth. So the first thing I learned from him was that you know, something that I'd had in my heart for some time, which was building ideas is one of the most powerful ways that we can help support one another. Um, building them, whether through science or art, poetry. These are gifts because it is a lens into which to be able to see what we may have missed before. A lens that actually becomes the porthole to a different landscape, a different reality. The second thing I learned from Marty Seligman was that many things that are thought to, you know, we're just stuck with that in life, whether it's our temperament or, you know, bad things always happen to our family or, you know, why is it that I'm so anxious? So many of the things that we think we're stuck with, actually, um, we're not stuck with. We have a great matter of choice in our lives. 
And the choice can be in reshaping our interior life. I went for Martin Seligman, it was learned helplessness, learned the whole positive psychology movement was mm. about learned optimism. Um, and sometimes it's about different stance towards our endowment, that the very same anxiety that I feel is blocking the door, actually like putting my finger on a hot stove can be an indication of what's in the room and can be to my advantage. Anxiety has your back. Um, so I learned that there is indeed an observing eye, that we are chairman of the board, the maestro over our inner life. And the third thing I learned was that we all walk our walk. So I so appreciated being Seligman's student as he built the positive psychology movement. You know, he was an Aristotelian and he looked at our strengths and our virtues. But he and I never agreed on one point, which was the foundational, in fact, I would say the hub of the wheel, the central place of our awakened awareness, our spiritual awareness and the human composition. And he took tremendous interest in my point of view and never agreed with it. And he turned to me and he said, you know, this isn't in the field of psychology yet, that of which you speak, spirituality in 1995 and 1996. He said, but there are psychologists who read and there are psychologists who write. He said, be a psychologist who writes, which is to me, say, bring your own ideas. And you are authorized, as is every one of us, to bring your own ideas. And that was tremendously liberating. You don't need to live within the, the prison house of the field as it is built on today's historical information. Be a source. I think that's um, very important. And I, I love what you said about Marty giving you space to develop your own point of view and, and, and but continuing to spar, as it were, with you and encourage your own development. I'd like to move on now to um, books. Um, I used to say, is there a book that has shaped your life and thinking? But you can imagine that my guests on this podcast, uh, uh, many of them are steeped in books. And so which particular books would you identify as those that might have shaped your life and thinking? David, I was, like every child, a very spiritually aware child, like every child. And I am grateful that I was raised in a community that had in the air and water a great deal of spiritually infused religion. Most of the people were Christian. I was raised Jewish. And both in my home and in the homes of my friends was spiritually infused religious life. So the foremost presence of the spiritual reality was in the language of, of the mothers who helped raise me. You know, they would say things like, well, my husband just lost his job. God has a way of guiding us. I know the new opportunity will come. A spiritual response to the what the ego didn't order, what the ego didn't want. Um, the idea that we are loved and held and guided until I walked in you know, each morning at 8 a.m. to school, whether it was in kindergarten, fifth grade, senior year, college, or graduate school. The moment I walked into academia in the air and water was not an assumption of a transcendent reality, nor our capacity as human beings to perceive and engage with the sacred transcendent reality. There was in fact a lived radical materialism. It's only real if you can touch it and kick it there was in the air and water a 
real misconception of confounding science with radical materialism. And so strong and pervasive was this evisceration of any inherent meaning written into life that in time I saw the students come to be, you know, de facto radical materialist to mm. confuse rigor with nihilism. Yeah, my goodness, that's quite a remark, but keep going. So in this context, at 17, through a wonderful, you know, synchronicity, I might say God laid in my path, for a synchronicity far too unprobabilistic to have happened by chance, came The Only Dance There Is by Ram Dass. Mm. And first I read about who's Ram Dass, and it turned out that he had been entrenched in the radical materialism of his educational path that in some ways shared components with yours or mine, David. And um, I realized that he found it unlivable, but had another way, saw another vision. And the only dance there is, is a narrative, his story about living day in and day out in dialogue with the deeper force, the sacred force, the source in and through life, found by really getting present and connected and observing the moment and then witnessing the synchronicities and the guidance. It was the first book that made sense to me. It was the first book that wasn't assigned that, uh, and then taught from a view of nihilism and radical materialism. And suddenly I thought, hey, there are some teachers and guides that, who already see the deeper sacred bedrock of our lives. And this is a sure and steady bedrock. They've been walking on this. This speaks to my inner knowing. Yes, my inner compass, what I've come to see is my inborn, all of our inborn innate epistemologies. They are real. That's hard. Yes. To Mystical awareness, intuition. These are forms of knowing organic epistemologies that yield, that bring forth hard data. Yes, I'm, I'm struck by your phrase, um, the radical materialism being unlivable, because I think that puts a kind of existential angle on it. And, and of course, insofar as it leads to you know, nihilism, despair, meaning, meaninglessness, no sense of the center, no rootedness, uh, it is unlivable. It's toxic and painful, and it is the foremost, you know, I, I'll just be very direct. Radical materialism is killing young adults. We have a whole generation, Gen Z, raised without spiritual support, raised without the 70% environmental contribution. A few mm. have gotten mm. support, but never have so many not. And sure enough, we have never seen as elevated rates of the diseases of despair, despair, depression, addiction, suicide, the rate of death by suicide rivals the rate of death by auto accident as the number one killer of young adults. In high school, it's pushing down into middle school. And indeed, these tragic statistics go hand in hand with the attenuation of the spiritual core in young adults. We did this to them by eviscerating meaning by disavowing their birthright of knowing, trusting themselves, the organic knowing of God's presence. They are born to be in a sustained relationship with the sacred, who I call God, the transcendent, this higher power. And in our culture, it is only 
when we bottom out, when we're in AA or NA having hit an extraordinarily painful time that we say, oh, you've got to hand it over. You've got to mm. turn to a higher mm. power. I'm, you lose, God forbid, lose a child. There's nothing more painful. You've got to turn to your higher power. Well, we are built to have walked and lived every day of our lives in a transcendent, sustained relationship with our higher power. When we take that away, when we deprive, really it's it's a form of, of malnourishment, an entire generation, and they are stuck with only radical materialism that is empty, that has no guidance, that is not loving, it is nothing but cold and inert, then of course they're alone and splintered and pained and they live in a very cold world because it is an ailment of perception. Yes, and when we're giving them stones and they need bread. Yes. Uh, yes. And look, stone is cold and hard. And they, they need something they can be nourished by. Uh, and are, you're so right. And you know, I feel passionately about this as as we both do, I think. That yes. they, they're giving this sense of connection and worth and that they that young people can happen to life, that that they can follow some inner guidance and, and actually make contact with that higher part of themselves. I think it's critical. And we have the remedy, we have the antidote this moment. We can allow our children to quest, to explore the presence of God, the higher power. What do you feel in your heart or share a story from our own lives or open a sacred text from our own tradition or from a fellow tradition? This is at our fingertips and we don't need to be experts, but we do need to open our heart and be present and bear witness and ask them about their own spiritual experiences. You know, David, we've interviewed hundreds of adolescents and young adults. And when we say, can you tell us about a spiritual moment or spiritual experience in your life? Half of them say, wow, you know, I always thought something was going on. I actually have a, a story, but no one's ever asked me before. Mm. Mm. All I have to yeah. do is ask. Yeah, Thank well, in, indeed. I mean, it's there. I'd like to move on to a key moment of insight in your work in, in, in relation to the nature of consciousness. Is there something that an incident or a meeting that you could identify that was a, a little shift of perception? I think in 1998, I was a postdoc and I attended a spirituality and mental health conference at Harvard Medical School. And amongst a panel of 10 or 12 speakers that day, one of the speakers was Larry Dossey, who was speaking at the time on non-locality of consciousness. And as you know, went on to write One Mind. Um, Larry was a doctor, he worked in Dallas and he'd seen a lot of patients. And here at this Harvard Medical School continuing education program, a room full of doctors and nurses and PAs, Larry stood up and he talked about the power of prayer and the engagement of our consciousness with the infinite field of sacred consciousness in us, through us and around us as healing, as transformative. And not only was it within our own journey to be able to access this unitive field of loving, healing consciousness, we can help others alone by tapping into the sacred unit of reality. We can pray for others. We can know 
spontaneously what others are feeling. This mirrored my lived experience, much like when I found the book by Ram Das, The Only Dance There Is, back when I was 17. You know, now I was about 30 and I was a psychologist and there was someone in the medical field speaking into the reality of what was called non-local consciousness or one mind and mirroring the fact that we spontaneously do know that which occurs you know, in the three-dimensional world, 10 miles or 10,000 miles away. We do have access to all information at all times. Well, I had never seen anything like this in my mainstream experiences of mental health in my graduate training in the hospitals in which I'd worked. And I saw that it was professionally possible to be a clear, strong voice and that this reality was the deeper, you know, universal accessible reality, which could really transform human growth and renewal. Yes. I mean, I, I've known Larry for 30 years and he spoke first at, at Mystics and Scientists yes. uh, on the Heart in 1993. And he's spoken on many um, occasions to us and, and I'm a huge admirer of his work. And of course, he's such a wonderful, warm personality as of course is Barbie, his wife. I mean, so he's made a tremendous and they contribution. Walk the walk. They walk the walk. That was part of the message, yes, actually. Absolutely. I saw him, and he was kind, and he was healthy, and he was radiant, spirit through him. And he was so patient with each person who crowded around and had a question. I mean, I'm sure he's answered these questions hundreds, perhaps thousands of times. And he really lived out the, the infinite love. And, you know, David, I want to share with you, you know, you're very kind. You're always gracious. You know, your mind is beyond encyclopedic. I think you've read just about everything written, period. But it's always with such grace and modesty that you help you interview and guide and convene. You know, you, you live it. And I'm wondering, you know, something that I've so enjoyed discovering about your own work in the past few weeks, if you might share some of your poetry because it is soulful. To me, it is an awakened poetry. It's a form really of prayer. Would you consider sharing some of your poetry and perhaps one of the poems that we shared in the past few weeks? Yes, uh, and we're going off piste here, but why not? I'm taking advantage of being the guest because I want others to hear your poetry. And you're so modest, I don't know that you would read it in your own podcast. So I'm asking as a Heartfelt request. Yes. Well, I think I'm going to read not in our name. In my name, I will know vengeance. And this was said by Michal Halef, a mother whose son was murdered by Hamas. The mothers, the grandmothers, carry each generation in their wombs. They nurse, they cherish, they love, they sacrifice, they support, they comfort and console in the hearths of home and community, their hearts aglow with warmth, their eyes shining with radiant kindness. But now they can only weep and wail. Their sons lie lifeless before them in pools of seeping blood. Their lives shattered, their hearts wrenched in agony. Who will hear their piercing screams? Who will hearken to their searing cries? Who will listen with their souls ajar? 
Between their heaving sobs, angels of peace alight on their shoulders, whispering oh so softly in their ears. Gentle mothers and grandmothers, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Blinded by the rage of oppression and injustice, living by the sword, they can only die by the sword. For violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. War begets war. So dare to declare this unthinkable wisdom. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Mm. Do good to those who hate you. For love begets love. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. Understanding begets understanding. Such is the strength, the vision, and courage of love. Mm. This dreadful cup of bitterness we have drained to the dregs, to the depths of our broken hearts. We cannot wish such crushing anguish as we have endured to be visited on other mothers and grandmothers, not in our name. In our name we want no vengeance. This deadly poisonous pattern of reciprocal pain and mutual reprisal perpetuated down the echoing centuries, not in our name. We lend our name instead to healing. We lend our name to care and love. We lend our name to peace. Shalom, salam, shalom, salam, shalom, salam. David, that's the only way. Love begets love. It's breathtaking. Yes, well, it's deeply felt, and and uh, many people have appreciated what just arises uh, within me, if you like, because it's something you have to open to receive, and then if you're in the right state, then you will receive something worth writing so it's really great privilege to serve as a sort of channel for some of these things but thank you for asking but let's just come back to the last and david to experience your reading of the poem it feels that you are a conduit of inspiration of spirit it feels that that poem your poetry comes from source and you're the voice of source. And that experience of your reading, your poetry is transformative. It is awakening the form that spirit takes on through you in writing this and reading this awakens our understanding that the so-called conflict is actually a unitive suffering that two sides of one conflict are indeed one conflict. It is one pool of blood. It is one mother's mm -hmm. scream. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. And, you know, we're being challenged to move to this different understanding and, uh, you know, to get beyond these divisive polarities, um, which are sustained by our current system. We're being encouraged to go in the same way as Jesus said 2,000 years ago, that's why I called it the unthinkable wisdom, you know, quoting his words on the cross, quoting some of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, um, because it's still ha we haven't caught up with it. 
and mothers, which mothers? Is it a Jew? Is it an Arab? Actually, it is a mother. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you so much for that. Um, I'd just like to ask you, in a way you've answered this question already about how your understanding of consciousness and spirituality influences the way you live your life, but would you like to add anything? I live each day in dialogue with spirit, unless I get distracted or confused or do a bad job. <laughs> 90% of the time, um, I try to live in dialogue with spirit. And that means I don't know what today will hold, but I do experience life as an open system. I look for guidance. I listen intuitively. Do I turn left or right? Um, I see synchronicity of all people. Why is this gentleman standing in front of me mm. at the checkout line? Of all people now, why is there a woman crying next to me on the bus? Of, you know, are these for every one of us, I would say, but certainly just limiting it to my path. These are all, I think, divine appointments. We all have divine appointments every day um, sent to us to serve that we can be trail angels for one another and there are trail mm. angels waiting there for us yes uh, let me just tell you an experience i had um on a sunday um i went to spend half an hour in front of pablo picasso's guernica mm. especially you know given what the world is at the moment and, and uh, i i've written something i haven't formulated it properly yet but i've written something as my response to Guernica. Um, but while I was standing there, um, there was a, a woman with her small daughter, my daughter maybe age five, and she was she was kneeling down and the daughter was leaning against her. And I thought, here is what real humanity is, standing in front of this horrendous depiction of human torture and death and destruction. Um, and I want somehow to be able to convey that, that you know, when we return to the, the the essence of what it is to be human um, and spiritual at the same time, as we are spiritual beings, uh, as we both agree, um, then that's where we should be starting and finishing indeed. A life-giving mother. A life-giving mother. And then, Lisa, is there any quote or proverb that you live by uh, or anything that you'd like to share with our listeners what is god showing me now what is god asking of me now it's a very good question and obviously something that we can ask ourselves at all times so thank you very much for that and any advice you'd give to your younger self my father was right you know sort of tongue-in-cheek he once said if all you have is the information of where the herd is running, bet against the pack. <laughs> ah, that's great. Yes, exactly. But one has to have the courage to bet against the pack and to be running in the opposite direction while the, the buffaloes are charging you down. <laughs> um, but I think that's the key time is when you have sufficient sense of yourself to to stand in your power and your integrity because the two things go together, I think. And know your deep inner wisdom is valid, is hard data. 
your gut instinct, the whisper of your heart, that's true. It's actually the best information that we have. Well, it's wisdom rather than information, I think. Yes. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on Imaginal Inspirations. It really has been an inspiration to talk with you. David, I always cherish your conversations. You are a jewel. Thank you.